you, you got to tell somebody. And, and what I mean by that is that when I share, no matter how painful, two things happen when I share. When I share my joy, I double my joy. And when I share my pain, I cut my pain in half. And so if you find somebody, an old friend, a, a college roommate, a, a brother or sister you can trust, take a walk with them. The great Steve Jobs says, if you ever want to have a meaningful conversation, take them for a walk. And he says, two things will happen. You, the scenery will change every 20 steps, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And also you're going to move the problem or issue forward. Put your hand in the air, go share your pain and take a walk. And then really once that person says, let me help you, let them help you get out of your own way. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 155. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really difficult to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community and each week we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Hi all, just want to give a quick update. Last night I went out with some friends for the first time in a long time alcohol free and I didn't even crave a drink, not at all. It didn't enter my mind, wasn't thinking about it, I wasn't even worried about it and I had attended Janet's uh, wonderful workshop earlier that day with the amazing Lynette, Lucy and Nick And all the information was so fresh in my mind, I felt like, oh no, I don't want that poison in my body. Are you crazy? So I hope it's not too soon to to say this, but I'm really starting to feel that my mind is changing how it views alcohol. And this is definitely a step in the right direction. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest this week is Greg Champion. Greg has been in recovery for more than 20 years after nearly ruining his life with drugs and alcohol. These days, he's a recovery coach and a highly valued member of the recovery community in California. Seven years ago, he founded Startup Recovery, which is a transitional living facility built on his own values, as well as the lessons he learned during his own recovery. I began by asking Greg to introduce himself. Good morning, everyone. How you doing? Uh, Janet, thank you for having me on the Tribe Sober podcast. I'm, I'm grateful that we can do this connection via global communications. My name is Greg Champion. 
I am a husband, a father, a business owner, a son, an uncle 17 times over. And I am a man in recovery who just recently celebrated 28 years. And I don't mean to sound cocky or, or any way like that, but I really get the, the, the pleasure and the, the dignity of being paid by being me. I make a living by being me. And what I mean by that is I, I started a company seven years ago called Start Up Recovery. And many of the elements, the modalities and our values come from my own sobriety, lessons that I learned along the way. And really, I'm in the community here in Los Angeles. I just show people how to get sober. Awesome. So 28 years, eh? Wow. Can you remember those, those old days? I was really blessed with a really good memory to begin with. And, and since I've been sober, I'm kind of the oracle for all my friends and family because they can't remember way back when. But I'll say that I can remember back. I can remember back to my early childhood. I can remember to my teenage years. I can remember the good, the bad. I was uh, raised by a single mother and the television was my babysitter. I would come home with a latch key, they call a latch key kid, turn the key, come in and have an afternoon snack, plop down in front of the television. And I just remember taking in all those shows and news stories. And when it comes to remembering things, I really feel everything. Tell us about your first drink. Sure, and how sure. old you My were. first drink was in the um, seventh grade. We were at a uh, end of year seventh grade party. And I, I grew up in San Diego. And uh, I remember the upstairs was where the party was going on, but downstairs and sort of the dad's den was his liquor cabinet at this friend's house. And I remember like I went by all the liquor and all the, the hard stuff, the, the whiskey and, and all that. But then I got to this like peach schnapps and I'm like, Oh, this smells like candy. This smells, I, I know. And, and just like I would like a big peach, I poured a big glass and I took it and I go, Oh my I honestly, I just right now have that tingle. I feel that tingle again, going all the way down to my fingertips and my, and my toes. And so I, I looked at my friend and he did his and, and, and we all of a sudden, what, what happened was I ended up outside in their backyard in the ice plant, throwing up carrots and celery from the hors d'oeuvres that we had that night. So <laughs> my first night was not one of glory, but I do remember that that was my very first drink. Peach schnapps, that's quite yeah. something to get started yeah. on. And how did it evolve? And you got into drugs as well, I think. Yeah, you? you know, Janet, what I, want, what I hope to convey to your listeners is that I was an alcoholic before I took my first drink. And, and what I mean by that is that my father was killed in a drunk-on-drunk -drunk car crash when I was four years old. Shortly after that, three things I became addicted to. One was anger. How dare you take away my dad? How come I don't have a dad? Number two was fantasy. In order to deal with the anger, I would fantasize. And, and I remember like in 1976, I, would, um, I watched the movie Rocky and I wanted to grow up to be Rocky. And in 1977, Star Wars came out. And I'm this little toe-headed kid and I thought I was going to grow up to be Luke Skywalker. And I even thought I was going to grow up to be Smoking the Bandit and, and the $6 million man. So you can see the Fonz. And so fantasy played into it. And last but not least was, was attention. I was addicted to attention. I, I was a, a blonde, curly-head boy with big blue eyes. And I remember girls and women and babysitters and teachers just fawned over me. 
And I remember looking up just going, this feels good. And I really managed those three feelings in a very addictive pattern until I took that first drink. And then I realized, oh, there's my solution. And then it went from peach stops to six packs of beer to marijuana to cocaine. I, you know, growing up in San Diego, you're right next to Tijuana. And, oh, and back then we used to sneak across and go there at 15 years old. Yeah. And my whole goal, Janet, was to be an adult. God, if I go to Tijuana, I could be in a bar. I could do a shot, talk to a pretty girl. I, I, I feel like and this is at 15. And so really my goal was to leave my childhood. And, yeah. and, and so that's the progression when the alcohol took hold and never left. Mm. Talk us through your 20s. How did they evolve? Did you go to college? Did you have a job? Yeah. I had a nice dance with alcohol in my teenagers. I really drank on Friday and Saturday nights, and I threw up every Saturday and Sunday morning. And, and that was my pattern for three, four years. Then I chose what would be deemed a, a very large party school to go to college. It's called Arizona State University. was always in the top 10 of Playboy's number one universities for parties. And I went there for two reasons, Janet. One was legitimate and one was I was going to find people like you, good partiers. And you, I'm going to find my tribe, right? And I found you guys. But I also went there because we had the Walter Cronkite School of Broadcast Journalism. And, and I knew I always wanted to be in television, in film, and I needed a, a legitimate story. So I went there for, for that. And then all college did was just pacify my addiction. And what I mean by that was more cocaine, experimenting with mushrooms and acid and, and, and other stuff, a lot of sexual behavior that was bananas. And, I, and once again, I wasn't in trouble, never in trouble, because there was always people who did more cocaine than me, people that drank more than me, people had that, that lost more than me. And as long as I was below that, I was good. It's funny, here in America, we're told, hey, once you get your college degree, you're going to enter the real world. And literally the real world hit me on my graduation night. I got my first DUI. Oh, no. Yes. I proceeded to get arrested for the next two years, seven other times. And Janet, the two things that were in common with those handcuffs, Greg, plus drugs and alcohol. The consequences became more. You know, I went from just staying the night to a couple nights to facing five years in prison. When I'm sober, I follow the rules. I'm a good rule keeper. And I like to put out a good image. And I make sure when I'm home for Christmas dinner, I would drink milk in front of my mom. So that way she'd be like, oh, he's still a good little boy. Meanwhile, when she goes to bed at 8.30, I leave and I go out till God knows when. What happened for me was I was promised this American dream, which is you get a college degree, you get a high paying job, and you get the nice car and a nice house. And what happened was I, I got a, a decent job working in broadcasting. I was definitely working my way up the ladder. I took the overnight shift at a TV station. So I was there from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. And guess what? You don't have many friends at 3 a.m. And Janet, I don't know about your experience, but the friends I found at 3 a.m. were what I call lower companions. They were people that wanted to do drugs with me. There were people that were dealing drugs with me, and there were girls I couldn't bring home to mom. So what came up for me was the opportunity to sell pot on a very large scale here in the United States. Because I went to a large university, I had tons of people all over the country that I could call up and say, hey, 
Can I ship you this? Can I do this? And, and people were like, yeah. And then two things happened. One, I'm a horrible drug dealer. I don't cross the T's. I don't dot the I's. And then when I, when I drug deal, I have such shame that I'm a drug dealer that I have to overdrink and overuse. And so each time I would do a deal, it would be more drinking, more drugs, different higher level drugs in order to quiet that shame down. Because I was a good middle-class kid from a nice family who went to Catholic private school. My last name is Champion. And I'm a drug dealer? What a fucking loser. Oh, pardon my French. <laughs> but that's what, that would, that's what would hit me in the head. And this, this would cycle on for like 18 months, two years. And then this is what happened. I get busted in the airport with 50 pounds of pot. I get in front of the judge. And the judge goes over my record. And he's like, man, you, you, what happened? And I said these three words, which I know every person who struggled with drugs and alcohol. He said, what happened? I said, I don't know. And what clarity I have now is I did not know because when I'm under the influence of drugs and alcohol, Janet, I'm an animal. I'm not a human being. I'm a take, take, taker. I don't give. I will slash the village. I will burn down the church. And that's not who I really am. That's just this person that's over here. I call him Greg the asshole. And so, but the judge says to me, here's what I know, son. If I see you in my courtroom in the next six months, I'm going to give you the five years hanging over your head in prison. And I was scared for a couple days, a week. And then 18 days later, I found myself in my little sports car. I drank already six pack of beer, smoked a couple of blunts and had a couple bindles of Coke in my front pocket. And Janet, I was going to the party of the year. Now, in my mind, it's the party of the year. Meanwhile, my high school friends, my college friends had all left me because they didn't want to be around a scumbag, right? And at this party, I walk in and within 10 minutes, I see somebody I don't even know. And he comes up to me and he goes, hey, you got any blow on you? I said, yeah, I got some blow on me. Come on down. Let's go. We go down the stairs. We go across the parking lot. We go into my little car and I pull out my Duran Duran CD case and I chop up a couple lines and I present them to him just like this. And Janet, he presents San Diego Police Department badge. <laughs> I thought that was coming. Busted. Big Busted. time. Oops. Busted. Five years then. Your Five suspended years. sentence. Yeah. Here, here we oh. go. So the next morning I wake up in the jail cell and I am scared. I am demoralized. I, I really want to just hang myself in the, in the cell. I'm literally looking for something to hang myself because I cannot believe my name's going to be in the paper about this. I cannot believe one more time my mom's going to get a phone call. And then from the fetal position, I hear this voice in the corner of the room say, Greg, there's a better way. Greg, there's a better way. I get up, I look around, and there's no one in the cell but me. And the same voice whispers to me, call your mother. Call my mother. Call your mother. So from the jail cell, I call my mother, and she simply tells me this, Gregory, whenever parents are pissed at you, they give you the full name. Gregory, I want you to go to church. You want me to go to church? I want you to go to church. I, I think that your answer is there. Go to church. And so I got bailed out and uh, scooped myself together. And, and that night, I went to a Sunday 6 p.m. mass. After the mass, the priest says, we're going to do confessions tonight. Would anybody like to do a confession? And Janet, 
As God is my witness, this is my first thought. If I go to confession, I can go out tonight. Yeah. But I went behind door number two, and there was this beautiful older man in a white cloak with white hair and laser blue eyes, and he had an Irish accent. Now, in all these years of telling this story, Janet, I've never been able to, to, to bolster an Irish accent, so I, I, won't, I won't try. But he said, son, sit down and tell me your sins. I said, father, when I smoke a lot of pot, I show up on Christmas on December 27th. When I drink a lot, I go in the local bars and I hurt people. When I do a lot of cocaine, I, I date three women at the same time. And when I do all three of those and then some, I fly large amounts of marijuana to the East Coast. He puts his hand up in a very father way, priest way. And he says, son, do you think you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? No. And then, Janet, he gives me that look that our sponsors, our mentors, our parents, our teachers, our coaches give us, which is a pause with, please, son, tell me the truth. That look. And I said, father, you know, you're the second man in my life to ever ask me that question. And he goes, who was the first? And I said, my stepfather. Now, Janet, to back up a little bit, my stepfather was someone my mom married when I was 10. And he was a World War II vet. He was there on Omaha Beach on D-Day as a 19-year-old kid, scared out of his guts. He came back, got the GI Bill, put himself through Northwestern. He loved my mom, which is all I wanted for her, is to have a man love her. But as a father, he taught me how to tie a tie, shave my face, open doors for ladies, all this older, greatest generational stuff. But the best thing he did for our families, he brought 17 years of A sobriety into the house. I watched him. I watched him go to meetings. I watched him take cakes. I watched him do service. And so when I said to the father, the second man that ever asked me if I had a problem was Walt Janicki. Or I said he was the, he was the second man. The first one was Walt Janicki. The priest re reaches across my and grabs my hand and goes, I was Walt Janicki's first sponsor. Wow. What a coincidence. A sign. <laughs> a, a very big sign. It always touches me because... um. I think back, like, that's my why on the road. Yeah, yeah. That's my why. It was, it was your time to choose which way oh, to go, wasn't it? For sure. And so I sat there quietly, and I just said, Greg, whatever this man tells you to do next, you're going to do. And what he said was, your sins don't belong here. They belong four blocks up at the Alano Club, and there happens to be a, a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous starting at 730, and I think you should go. And Janet, I went up four blocks, I went upstairs, I went into a room, which many of us have been in, big circle, and I saw how these people had this blue Bible and this plastic cake, and they held hands, and I went to my first meeting, and that was 11-7-1994. That man changed my life, and really, I look at it like this, here's a man of the cloth pointing me to a solution that I end up finding my own version of God over there. Here's the other cool thing. His name is Father Bill Wilson. That's amazing. And, and, yeah. and so I, I, what I want to finish with in terms of this God shot is the next day I went and saw him at his office. And he says, look, I'm going to be your temporary sponsor. I need you to do three things. I need you to don't drink or use no matter what. Go to 90 meetings in 90 days and go take boxing lessons. Boxing lessons? He said, yeah, because when you do the first two, you're going to have so much anger and resentment. You got to put it somewhere. And so when I work... 
with people I coach, people I mentor, yeah. or people I sponsor. I tell them the same three things. And they, they take boxing lessons, some yes. of them. Yeah. Yes. Amazing, isn't it? That that one meeting, you chose life, didn't you? Yeah, I you did. were at the crossroads that evening and miraculously you chose life. A bit out of character. You've been making bad choices for so right. long, but that night, good yeah, choice. It, well done. Greg's way was not going to work anymore. No, yeah, no. Yeah. no. 90 meetings in 90 days? Is that what you did? I did. I had that little court. Yeah. What's well, funny, the judge said the same thing. So I had a court slip. I had to get the court slip signed. And, and I'm a big believer in 90 meetings in 90 days. I, I really mm. feel like when you put drug, when you take drugs and alcohol out, there's a big gaping hole right here. And I think oh, that, that meetings good. and that type of recovery yeah. fills it up quickly. Janet, you are 1000% right with naming your company this. You find your silver tribe. It's just that connection, isn't it? I mean, yeah. me just meeting you a few minutes ago, but I feel like we can connect straight away, you know, because we, sure. we understand each other, don't we? Yeah. So much more than people that haven't been through any kind of struggle. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So early sobriety, how did it work out for you? Were there any relapses or so did you no stay strong but, from the beginning? I was a runner. What would happen was I would work step one, two, and three. I would look at step four, which is looking at our secrets and our resentments. And really, you know, it's the opening Pandora's box. And what happened, I, I do step one, two, and three, have a home group, have a sponsor. And then poof, I pull a Kaiser Soze and disappear. I would go find another sponsor and another home group, work steps two and three. And then I would look at step four. And I, go, I can't, I cannot tell anybody that. I cannot, I have too much, too much, too many secrets. And then one day, four, that, that went on for three years. I stayed sober just on steps one, two, and three. So it was the shame. It was still there. The shame that you felt oh, when you were oh, a, and, a drug and, dealer. And let, me, yeah. let me tell you how I had to unpack the backpack of shame was in my fourth year, this guy speaks and he goes, hey, I lost my father when I was a young boy. I was raised by a single mom. I'm a very creative soul. I struggle with ADD. And I'm, just, I'm literally going, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And then he says, there was, a, um, there was a coach who was inappropriate with me as a young boy. And I go, oh my God, that was me too. And so I went up to him after and I said, hey, can we go do coffee? And we went and did coffee. And he, after a short time of kind of reading me, he goes, you're blocked. I said, what do you mean you're blocked? He's like, I see that you got sobriety, but you're never going to get recovery unless you get unblocked. Yeah. Let me help you get there. And so I went and did a thorough four-step and fifth-step with this man. And what he did is he said, we're going to do the columns that's in the book, but then we're going to get a legal-sized piece of paper, and you're going to put the word shame at the top. And I want you to write all the things you still have inside you that you never told anybody. There was 19 things on the list. And he goes, we're going to uncover, discover, and discard. And he had a beautiful way of doing it. First of all, he would say to me, is that who you are today? No. Oh, okay. Okay, uncover. All right. Discover is, okay, who was that back then when you did that or someone did it to you? And I would examine that with him. And then we had a brilliant way of how to get rid of stuff. And I'll give you an example. As a kid, I had a BB gun and I shot out some church lights. And I remember I had great shame that I, that I had actually you know, hurt God in a way or, or, or you know, somehow had this backpack hanging on me. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put a $100 bill in an envelope. 
I want you to go to your old house and I want you to pray for that nine-year-old version of you who had no dad, was struggling with anger, fantasy, and attention, and was also being abused by, by a neighbor, right? And pray for that kid. Then I want you to take the envelope and I want you to go put it in a mail slot at a church. And that'll be your financial restitution. And you'll never have to think about it again. And we did that exercise for all 19 things. And I'm Beautiful. telling you, Janet, I yeah. was free. I you was. must have felt like you had a backpack of rocks and you oh. took it off and put it down. Yeah. And the thing, what I found as I look back is like it was only going to get heavier. So yeah. it's, a, it's a tool I use in my coaching practice, which is we're going to unpack the backpack of shame. And it's a very powerful, liberating yeah. process. Yeah. And of course, the key for you was that guy, presumably you heard his share and, and straight away you knew you could trust him because he'd been through the same sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty key, isn't it? Having for that step four, you know, you've got to do it with someone that you relate to and you can trust. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people get blocked until they find that person and then they can go through that kind of magical process that you've been through. Yeah. And I, and I do think that part of that is... So let me ask you a question, Janet. In mm. your life, when you've gone against your gut, has something bad mm. happened or something good happened? Usually bad. <laughs> right, right. So God, our higher power, the universe gave us a voice inside to go with. And what happens yeah. is when we're dark and in our disease, we don't listen to it. And well, we're not connected with it at all, no, are we? No, not at we, all. It's we like, lose ourselves. Yeah, it's, yeah. And so in sobriety and in recovery, I found like I, my voice, my intuition only gets stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I know what you're saying, which you, you implied in your last kind of answer. But there's so much more to recovery than not drinking, isn't yeah. there? Uh, I, I didn't understand that at all when I quit drinking at first. I thought it was just about not drinking. <laughs> yeah. Not drinking is the ticket to the show. The band hasn't even started to play yet. Yeah, I like that. I might steal that. <laughs> Go ahead. So you've been sober for all these years now. What do you do to sustain your sobriety? Well, I'm of service. I, I, I secretary a couple meetings. I'm a treasurer at another meeting. I pick up newcomers on Sunday mornings and take them to a, a men's stag. I, I, I've heard that whether you're sober or normie, in order to get have a good life, you got to give back. So I'm always constantly giving. But really, the one thing that I have done perfectly is I haven't drank or used no matter what. Yeah, yeah. But also, I've remained willing to be willing. And, and what I mean by that, eight, nine, ten years ago, my, my marriage was in a, not in a good place. And it was like really a not in a good place. And I had some small children, and I didn't want them to be from a broken home. And someone said to me, why don't you go try couples counseling? Oh, that's for weak men. They're just going to get beat up in, in, in the couples counseling with, by their wife. I, I've heard all these stories. I've watched these TV shows, you know. Yeah. And so I was a big naysayer. Now, not going to happen. Not going to happen. And if, you know, as sometimes we need to be pointed, my wife served me the voice papers, and those same men said, "Well, do you have a better attitude towards couples counseling?" And I said, "Well, I think I better go try it." And what happened, Janet, is I went and tried it, and the first couple sessions were brutal, because they had to be. We've got to break you down in order to build you up. The great gift also is the therapist that was suggested to us was what we call a double winner. <laughs> she had 
20 years in Al-Anon and 17 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. So she was able to speak to both of us, very gifted therapists. And what we were doing, both my wife and I, we were holding on to childhood secrets that we had not told each other. We could both feel that energy. And once we were able to feel safe, we told those secrets, which then freed us up to become much tighter. And, right. and, I, and so what I try to do with I, talking to men and women who are marriages are struggling, I say, look, here's the solution I used. You know, I took contrary action. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the greatest gifts recovery could give you is I don't want to do it, but I better do it. And if I do it, I know I'm going to feel better on the other side. And that, that's almost a 98 percent success rate. Yeah. A few years ago. So you're willing to be willing. It's about being open-minded, isn't oh, it? Because recovery, ago, it's it's a journey of self-discovery, isn't it, oh, really? You start it, it learning really who it's, you are and what you can do. I, I look at it this way. It's, sobriety is just one big foundation. you got to have that. But then it's like, yeah. okay, go heal that childhood trauma. Go fix your marriage. Go be a great father to your kids by going to a parenting retreat. Go be a chaperone for your kid's school. Do the things that aren't always supposed to be male-oriented, to be a balanced man. I also t- took up breath work a few years ago. And this brilliant teacher here in the United States named John Paul Crimi taught me breath work. And boy, I cried like a baby the first time to get all that stuff out. I take acupuncture because guess what? If you've fallen down staircases or bumped your head a few times, you have some old injuries you may not want to address. You know, like, Jenna, if you told me, like, hey, Greg, I was able to get past the trigger by doing this little 10-minute meditation by standing on your head, guess what I'm doing tomorrow? I'm standing on my head for 10 minutes because Janet told me to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I I like what you say about sobriety being a foundation because, in a way, if you haven't got that foundation, the rest of your life isn't going to work. But if you visualize it as the foundation, then you can build your life on top of that. Can't you? you can then work on your, your marriage and your career and the other stuff. But nothing works if the sobriety isn't there. So obviously you're now in the recovery space, which I'm looking forward to hearing about. Yeah. But why did you go into that space? What, what pulled you there? I was able to have a nice little career in Los Angeles around television, production, media, branding from 1999 to 2016. Various jobs, NBC, DreamWorks, Fox Sports, had my own company. And then what happened was that particular part of the, of the, of the entertainment world started having smaller budgets and these kids running around with cameras who were, who were 26 years old. And I kind of felt the squeeze. And I, I began saying to my wife, I go, God, I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I, I got to figure out something. She's like, well, ask God. And so I said, God, I just want to get paid for being me. I want to get paid for being me. I don't know what that looks like, but I know I'm invitable to things. I, I know I belong. I galvanize people. And what happened was I was speaking at, a, at an AA meeting, about 35 people. And when I got done and I talked about getting sober in my 20s. I talked about uh, being a successful businessman. I talked about being a successful entrepreneur. I talked about being a great mentor to 100 different kids over the past 10 years, trying to be a good husband and a a strong father. And this woman comes up to me. She's like Yoda. She's this little petite woman. And she points her fingers at me and she looks up at me and she goes, 
you would make a great group facilitator. And I said, what's a group facilitator? She says, well, it's someone who comes into rehabs and sober livings and teaches a class about their experience around recovery. And I said, well, what would you think my experience is? She goes, what you just said for 20 minutes is your experience. And so I went home and I go, God, okay, I have this, this, and this. And I began putting together these classes at these Malibu rehabs that I go in once a week and connect with these 20-somethings. And I started grading myself. Well, that was an A, that was a D, that fell very flat. This was a B. And before you know it, all the A's and B's ended up in a bucket over here. And they ended up being the, the, the raw materials for my coaching curriculum. So we do the 10 intentions. We do the word of the year, the backpack of shame, the right to write, the lies we tell ourselves. We do a values exercise. We do a digital scrub, Janet. I say, hey, boys and girls, you got to get your phone out. We got to get rid of all those lower companions. And, and that's always a fun exercise because, you know, yeah, basically I, I say, Janet, if you had in your phone, you had Steve and a street corner, that, that, that basically is a person you need to have out of your, your phone. And so that's how I made the transition from entertainment and television production into recovery was I started at the bottom. You know, I had to learn the language, the difference between yeah. an executive director and a clinical director. I had to learn about case management, bipolar, you know, all those languages. And that took me about a year to two years to learn all that stuff. And then we grew that in from the coaching business into what we do now, which is a transitional living business. Uh, I met a wonderful man named Jeffrey Van in the rooms of AA. And he said to me, hey, I'm watching you do this coaching thing. It looks very powerful. What's your dream? I said, Jeff, my dream is to bring this coaching curriculum into some houses where I can spend more time with them and really have them ready for this, Janet. I'm sober now what? Yeah, yeah. It's very much a thing, isn't it? And yeah. that was, and we just celebrated five years. Fantastic. So, I mean, I've seen your website. You you bought a building and opened the startup recovery. Is that how it worked? We opened up one house, seven bedrooms, and what we do is we cater to executives, professionals, athletes. We also do really well with millennials and trying to get them. As one father says, "Hey, get this kid off my couch and off my credit card." And we really try to help them find who they are and go do what they're meant to do. I'll just say in a short amount of time, we, we now have three houses all on the same street. Our curriculum is made up of my coaching one-on-one -on -one with each client. We also have a wellness director who does breathwork, sound bath, and acupuncture. Right? Does that sound familiar where that came from? And then yeah. we, make sure they're we make sure they're connected to a clinical so they have a therapist that's part of their deal that's, that's separate of us. And then we're real big on community. Always, we start our day with a meeting, we end our day with a meeting. And then last but not least, and I know you have your sober buddies, we have sober mentors. And yeah. what we try to do is attach a sober mentor to each client. And here's their qualifications. They have long-term sobriety and long-term success in the industry you want to work in. Okay, nice. Yeah. Nice. So connections and uh, some help with the yeah. career building. Yeah. Lovely. How many do you have in each house? Did you say about so seven people? We have seven people? beds in each house. Right now we have 15 people here between the three houses. We usually average around 17. But here comes Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, otherwise known as the Bermuda Triangle. 
And so yeah. this will be a very <laughs> uh, busy season for us in terms of the phone yeah. ringing. I, I always say God sits on my board of directors here at Startup Recovery. And the reason being is these two other houses were total God shots. Two houses down, four houses down over here. We also opened up a sober apartment building, Janet, where once the people, our clients, are here for 90 days, they can go down to the apartments and, and stay for another year in our system. And I think, and I believe okay. having done this for five years, that's a great way of doing things because here's why. You, you get a longer runway. Yeah. And you, it's really needed, I think, after that, because so many rehabs, you know, I mean, I see people that come out of rehab and they're okay for about a week and then they're back on it. You know, they're, they're just the rehabs. Some of the rehabs aren't giving people the tools that they need to survive outside. But I like the sound of this. Hey, you've got your 90 days quite intensive, you know, covering all the angles, living in your houses. And then you've got this almost this like halfway the, the apartments for a year. Is that yes. it? Yep. Is that the typical program that someone would do? No. You know, a lot of times people are, are you know, they go to 30 days in a rehab and then they go home <laughs> and they don't have much. Yeah, I know. And so what yeah. we try to create was we call it transitional living. So we don't have any doctors or nurses here. What we really try to do is, is have people come in, feel human, feel like an adult and be able to go out in the world and come back, go out in the world and come back. And so we give them yeah. four hour windows and then eight hour windows. And then they eventually earn their way to overnight. And so that way they're trying to heal their relationships at home. They're trying to really heal their relationships with their work and most important, heal their relationships with themselves. Because when you're able to feel human, you 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 guess what? Your your goal to achieve to going from being an animal to being human it comes on a most more more profound way of doing things. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com that's janet j-a-n-e-t at tribesober.com and we'll send you an invitation so i was going to ask you if someone's listening to this and the where you were in your yeah. darkest hour what, what would you say to them is there a way out if they yeah, don't I, meet that amazing irish priest that you had the yeah. good fortune to meet I, I, I would say this. I say, number one, first thing, you got to tell somebody. You, you got to tell somebody. And, and what I mean by that is that when I share, no matter how painful, two things happen when I share. When I share my joy, I double my joy. And when I share my pain, I cut my pain in half. And so if you find somebody, an old friend, a, a college roommate, a, a brother or sister you can trust, take a walk with them. The great Steve Jobs says, if you ever want to have a meaningful conversation, take them for a walk. And he says, two things will happen. You, the scenery will change every 20 steps, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And also you're going to move the problem or issue forward. And so I would yeah. say to your, put your hand in the air, go share your pain and take a walk. And then really once that person says, let me help you, let them help you. Get out of your own way. Please, Janet, all your listeners need to listen to this. Time is our most precious commodity. Yeah. 
And I think about all the drinking and drugging and wrong people in my life. and how All that wasted time. Wasted. time. <laughs> right? It's wasted time. I have nothing to show for it. And so I want to encourage your listeners to put the bottle down, put the pills down, and use your time to connect with your friends and family. Because as you know from that great TED Talk, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. Thank you so much, Greg. What an amazing story you have to tell. Let's pull out a few of the valuable points that you made. You heard Greg say that he was an alcoholic before he picked up his first drink. That's a very interesting statement, which would apply to many drinkers with unresolved childhood trauma. Greg's father was killed in a car crash when he was only four. That left him feeling angry and abandoned. As he grew older, he became addicted to anger, fantasy and attention. That all changed when he took his first drink as a young teenager. A drink that soothed him and took the pain away. By the time he was 15 years old, he was crossing the border into Mexico to drink in bars and shut up girls. He just wanted to be a grown-up. Greg chose to study at Arizona State University, which is well known as a party university. Alcohol and drugs were always present during his college years, but it was normalised. And as Greg says, there were always people worse than me, people doing more booze, people doing more drugs. These comparisons are so dangerous. Why do we always compare ourselves with people who are in worse trouble? when we should be comparing ourselves with who we could be if we were leading our best life. Even if alcohol doesn't destroy us, it will always prevent us from reaching our potential. Greg topped off his university career by getting his first DUI on graduation night. That more or less set the tone for the following two years when he was arrested seven times. He went from overnight stays in prison to two night stays and finally he had the prospect of a five-year suspended sentence hanging over his head. He managed to get a job in broadcasting, but it involved shift work, ending at 3am, which meant he was mixing with other users after work. He got into the vicious cycle of selling drugs and then overusing and overdrinking to overcome the shame of being a drug dealer. He got busted at an airport carrying drugs. The judge told him that if he saw him again, he would be activating that five-year suspended sentence. Greg parted on regardless, but then got busted again by an undercover cop at a party. Back in a jail cell, he heard a voice telling him to call his mother. So he did. She told him to go to church. So he went. He went to confession and told the priest everything. He finally accepted that Greg's way was never going to work. So he listened to the priest, took his advice and went straight to an AA meeting. This was his moment of truth. He had to decide between two paths. He chose sobriety. His AA sponsor told him to take boxing lessons he would need to prepare for all of the anger he was going to feel in early sobriety. He would need a punch bag. Greg went on to do 90 meetings in 90 days. As he says, when we stop using, there is a great gaping gap in our life that we need to fill with something. We can fill it with 90 meetings and follow the 12 steps. 
Or we can try a different approach and join a sobriety community. Go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe to check out our approach. There are so many paths these days, but the important thing is find your sober tribe. Greg managed to stay sober for the first three years by using just the three steps of AA's 12 steps, but somehow he couldn't bring himself to open the Pandora's box, which is step four. Everything changed when he heard a speaker at the AA meeting. The things the speaker was saying really resonated with him. The guy had been sexually abused at a young age, and Greg was finally able to admit that, yes, this had happened to him as well. Greg began to work with this person, who told him that he was blocked because although he had sobriety, he hadn't got recovery. It's so true, isn't it, that there's so much more to recovery than not drinking. I love the expression that he used. He said, not drinking is the ticket to the show. The band hasn't even started playing yet. So Greg's new sponsor used this process called Uncover, Discover and Discard. You heard Greg describing that during the interview and giving you a great example of something that he'd done when he was just nine years old. Applying this framework to all 19 things on Greg's shame list liberated him. He now uses this process with his own clients. He calls it unpacking the backpack of shame. In 2016, Greg's media career was stalling, so he began to look at alternatives. All he really wanted to do was to be paid for being himself. Sharing his story at an AA meeting one day, he met a lady who told him he'd be a great group facilitator. This encouraged him to put together a talk and start visiting rehabs to share. He trained as a recovery coach and used his experience to put together a coaching curriculum. Seven years ago, his coaching business evolved into a transitional living facility where they do one-to-one and group coaching to address that all-important question. I'm sober, so now what? He's got a wellness director and each client has a therapist. And of course, community is at the heart of everything and every day starts and ends with a meeting. You can find out more about Greg and this facility by going to his website, which is startuprecovery.com. And he's also on social media. I'll put all the links in the show notes. I think Greg's story really emphasizes the importance of making the right choice when you reach that fork in the road. Just imagine if he hadn't followed that priest's advice and gone to AA, he could have ended up in prison rather than leading the beautiful life of service that he's leading these days. So if you're reaching a place where you need to make a choice, please check out tribesober.com or just email me at janet at tribesober.com. There's no need to wait until you get a DUI or a risk of going to prison. If you're just worried about your drinking, if it's on your mind, if you're listening to this, you probably need to make a change. You'll never regret it. Let me end with a message from one of our chat rooms. We're running a 66 day challenge at the moment and our challenges are on day six today. Challenger Shireen posted in the group. I did well on a night out with girlfriends who drink wine. 
I went armed with my non-alcoholic drinks and sailed through it. It helped that I was thinking, well, they're drinking poison and I'm not. I slept so well and I woke up fresh and headed off to the gym. It may get harder over time, but for today, I love feeling proud of my early wins. We can do this. Well done, Shireen, that's brilliant. This journey is all about mindset, and once we shift our limiting belief that alcohol is fun and something we need, we can see it for what it really is. Simply a toxin that we've been manipulated into wanting. And we stop feeling envious when we see our friends drinking and start feeling sorry for them. We've just scheduled our next Zoom workshop for April the 22nd. And of course, we've also got an online course that you can work through at your own convenience. They're both called Kickstart Your Sober Life. And if you're interested in either of those, all the info is on tribesober.com. And finally, if you'd like a copy of our free PDF, Tribe Sober Battle Plan, just drop me a line, janet at tribesober.com. That's it from me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.